Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and I'm excited to have Nick King, who's the CEO of Wint. Wint is an investment platform that makes it possible for investors of all sizes to invest directly in securitized and diversified uh, collections of wine fine wine and rare spirits. Before starting Wint, uh, Nick spent five years in the finance industry, specializing in value investments of various hedge funds and private equity firms. Nick has done his bachelor's from University of Virginia. A big thanks to Jacob Sheldon from Shiny for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Welcome to the show Nick. Thanks, Rohit. Great to be here. Awesome. So, uh, you know, uh, you, you did start off with, with finance and you had worked in, uh, with hedge funds uh, as well as private equity firms. Uh, what what led you to, you know, get into this world of startups? Yeah. Um, so good question. Um, yeah. Background in finance, um, sort of the, the traditional path of um, you, college to investment management. And I have always had this sense of independence and sort of a trader mentality. Um, so growing up, it, whether it was like Pokemon cards, trading those. And as I got older um, on FIFA, the the video game, there was a player market where you could trade and arbitrage different players. Um, and, you know, I, I looked at, you know, public equities and it's, you know, pretty hard to find those um, edge type of opportunities. And then I found the wine market. And what was really, really interesting about wine and spirits as an asset class is this economic inefficiency where in different regions, different sourcing channels, you have price discrepancies that you can find in edge um, and, and win. So um, that, that mentality, along with being hyper-competitive and always trying to learn, I feel like all of that is encompassed in the startup world. Interesting. You, you you mentioned about wine. I think uh, I remember Gary Weinshirk used to run uh, like like a wine a marketplace or something. And uh, I I you know I had a bit of an understanding through his platform and his marketplace on you know uh, how he used to sell the products. But but why why do you think wine has you know performed so well and has given such great returns than you know the S and P five hundred? Yeah. Um... It makes sense. Uh, Econ 101, they they teach you if supply is decreasing and demand is increasing, the effect of that is price will rise. So you think about, say, a 2010 Screamy Eagle that we have on our platform. Um, no more of that is being made. It's only being consumed. So supply is ever decreasing. Um, and then it is improving and aging while it's in bottle. So you combine those two factors, um, that's going to lead to price appreciation over the long term. Um, and, you know, it, it's a it, it's an asset class that has, you know, survive cycles. Um, so in times of inflation, people, their, their sentiment around the US dollar decreases, they look for tangible assets like gold, like wine as a, as a store of value. So um, Cambridge actually ran a really interesting study dating back to 1900, showing that um, fine wine had generated about 8.5% annually over the last 120 years, outperforming art, 
um, bonds, real estate. Um, so yeah, it has a, has a really long track record, but it's been largely inaccessible and opaque for, um, uh, people to really get efficient exposure to the asset class. Got it. And you know, somebody who, who's not aware about, about wine investing and what are wine all about, uh, how, how do they go about deciding what wine to buy? Uh, does it make sense to buy the the oldest wine and the most expensive wine? And, you know, what's what's the minimum amount of investment they need to make? Yeah. So I'll, I'll talk sort of how things used to be and how we've changed them. So um, in, say, even three years ago, one of the only ways to invest in wine and spirits as an asset class was um, these UK-based managers where you would send them $25,000 and they would go and pick out wines for you. Three weeks later, you would get a list of wines back. Um, we thought that was really inefficient and opaque and um, largely inaccessible. Another was the do-it-yourself method where you could work with your um, local wine uh, shop. Um, you could maybe set up your own storage um, a seller in your home um, and, and do it yourself. Uh, so both of those have a lot of problems, uh, whether it's access, you know, high startup costs. So the approach that we've taken, one, we've completely lowered all barriers to entry. So we spent eight months with the SEC to uh, get qualified under Regulation A+, uh, allowing both accredited and non-accredited investors to access the asset class at like $10 a share. So um, accessibility is a big piece. Second is accessibility of wine. So for us, we're sourcing $500,000 to a million dollars worth of wine at a time. Because we have the commercial licenses and relationships, we get access to really interesting supply at advantageous prices compared to retail. So because of that um, you know, scale factor and pricing power, we're able to pass that benefit along to investors so that they can build a portfolio of the best assets. And you ask, like, what makes a, a wine investable? We're generally looking at wines that are over $200 a bottle um, with a strong strong focus on the top tier of these assets. So we bought a, a data set that has the last 20 years of wine pricing data. Um, and we created this matrix where we studied the wines based on a price to score ratio. And what we found is that the higher the price to score ratio, this is like the, the finance nerd myself trying to really financialize the asset class, but um, the higher the price to score ratio, the stronger the returns. So uh, a really good example of this and you know why we're the best financial product to get exposure to this asset class is DRC is one of the most famous wines. It's um, produced in Burgundy and three bottles uh, will go for about $90,000. Uh, but it's been one of the most strong, most strong performing um, wines out there. So if you think about building a portfolio of assets, you know, you don't want to be more than say 10, 20% exposed to a single position in your portfolio. So if you wanted to include DRC in an efficient wine portfolio, you would need to have nearly a million dollar portfolio. So, and wine is generally going to be a fraction of your entire portfolio. So 
for us, you could have bought one share in every single Vint offering. We've done 25. Um, you would That would have cost under $1,500 and you would have an unparalleled portfolio of wine, spirits, futures, and casks. So, super interesting. And uh, uh, what, what uh, advice would you give to people who would want to get into wine uh, investing? How much of their portfolio should be into wine and spirits? And yeah, I mean, uh, you can talk more about that. Yes. So I'll, I'll give the disclaimer of, you know, talk to your financial advisor, um, et cetera. Um, and, you know, this is just my opinion. So um, for I've looked at a number of different studies. So um, Credit Suisse runs a collectible study and they're looking at ultra high net worth individuals and about 5% of their portfolios are being allocated to collectibles like art and wine. So I know City has done some work on the art industry as well. Um, but from a portfolio construction perspective, this is a really interesting asset class. Um, another you know, thing that I ha- had learned in the past is, is um, modern portfolio theory. So how to build this portfolio that is going to generate the best risk adjusted returns. And in order to do that, you're looking for assets that are truly uncorrelated. And with that data set that we looked at price to score ratios, wine lacks any material correlation to stocks, bonds, real estate, and um, inflation. So it's up to you and your financial advisor, whoever you work with to decide how much to allocate. But what I can say is it offers really interesting um, diversification benefits. Today, I have an interesting stat for you to denote that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x. They managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. What is the revenue model and how do you, how do you sign up with invest, uh, investors for your platform? Yeah. Um, so for us, it's a marketplace model. We don't charge any annual management fees. Um, over the past three years that I've been um, working on Vint, I've had conversations with hundreds of investors and annual management fees have really fallen out of favor. Um and you know, it's also been interesting to really learn about investor psychology. I find that to be um, incredibly interesting. So for us, it's a marketplace model. Um, we take a sourcing slash origination fee. Um, that fee is dependent upon you know the spread between what we're sourcing at and what we're seeing in the market. Um, you know, we want to offer our collections at what is market low or we feel advantageous prices. Um, So like one good example was we had a $129,000 Glenn Farclass whiskey collection. um, And our offering price was 17% below the retail value. That collection sold out in under two hours um, to hundreds of investors. So um, yeah, we charge a sourcing origination fee. That's it. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm based out of UK. Can I also invest into Wind, uh, or is it only for for Americans? Yes. Yeah, so one thing that we like to say is <laughs> anything can be done, um, and that's that's a mantra that we have. It's like 
you know, we can allocate resources to things and find solutions. So yes, um, you can spin up an LLC and invest. Uh, we have a quick process for you to do so and different partners. Um, however, um, as an individual, it is just U.S. Um, residents and citizens, so have to have a social security number. Um, but we have international investors who've set up LLCs to invest with us. Got it. Interesting. And um, you also had signed up with, you know, made some strategic partnerships with uh, Alto IRA and Winston. In fact, I had Eric from um, Alto IRA uh, on episode number 207. We're going to put it on the show notes. But but how did these partnerships uh, go about? And, you know, uh, what's, what's so different about, you know, uh, IRA investments and, and having alternate investments on IRA? Yeah, so... Alto has been a great partner of ours. Um, and you know, in, in one of their, their series a press release, they say there's $30 trillion sitting in IRAs right now. And you can look and see the broad spectrum of how people tend to invest their IRAs. But a lot of, a lot of the time, um, people will start their job, check a box. And that is how they allocate their 401k. It gets rolled into an IRA and they're notoriously, um, and, and, you know, Eric can speak to this better than I can, but they're notoriously um, poorly invested. So um, people look at their IRA as a long-term investment um, sort of entity. And for us, we stress wine and spirits is a long-term investment. Um, we estimate hold periods between three to seven years. Um, so it does align with that goal of IRA investors for long-term capital appreciation. Um, for us, because we go through the SEC, we set up an LLC for each collection, securitizing the assets. Um, we are actually the only way that people can allocate into um, wine and spirits through an IRA right now. So um, yeah, partnerships is, I, I think, really interesting that distribution, like uh, Vincent also, they write pieces on us, Alton Insights does research. Um, the more information um, that we get out there to educate educate people around one alternative assets, but um, two wine and spirits um, as an investment asset, the better. Um, that's really one of our goals is to financialize this asset class. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's no reason that, um, say, in 2024, the Morgan Stanley chief investment strategist um, wouldn't say, okay, wine and spirits, it makes sense to allocate 1% to 2% of your portfolio. And the only way to do so in a securitized SEC qualified manner is Fint. Um, like, I don't think that's too crazy of a world. Interesting. And, um, you know, since, since you, you're, you're the founder of the company, how do you cope out? Uh, thinking about you know spending time uh, building the company and you know your resource allocation when it comes to you know growing the company. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I don't know if I've ever even act, um, answered that. So um, we have a team of ten now, um, and I have a co-founder Patrick, who's um, our our CTO. Uh, and I'll say 
I take a trust first um, perspective to every single person that we bring on. Um, the way that I view my job is that I'm always removing hats. Um, so I have removed the wine hats. We just hired Adam LaPierre, who's one of the 50 masters of wine here in the US to be our director of wine, probably the best person in the world to lead the wine team. There's no reason I should be telling him how to do his job. Um, on the customer acquisition side of things, we hired a great um, growth marketer. So I was able to remove that hat. Um, and, you know, I'm failing at my job if I'm not getting people who are five to 10x better than I am at that. So how I allocate right now um, is about 25% is sort of internal people management, making sure that um, our, our team is growing, improving, doing weekly one-on-ones um, with individuals on the tech side. You know, that's Patrick. Patrick um, relays to me um, how things are going on, on the tech and product side. Um, another 25, maybe 25 to 50% is going to be what I'll say like biz dev type of work. So building relationships, I'll throw fundraising into this category as, you know, that ebbs and flows, but right now it's, it's in a pretty strong process. Um, but that'll be the second, like just always networking. I, yeah. I haven't gotten to that point where I say no to calls. I still say yes to basically every single, um, call. And the benefit of that is, um, you know, when we're looking to hire someone, oh, I've talked to three product people in the last year. Let me just go and, you know, ping them, just say, hey, we're looking for someone. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll actually throw recruiting in there as well. I always, recruiting, networking, and biz dev all fall into this like 50% of my, my time. Um, and that's where step function type of change happens is you get someone on the team who is a rock star. They can, you know, change the trajectory of this business. We make a partnership like an Alto and other people that we've been talking with that can change the trajectory of this business. So um, that's where I feel like my time is really well um, allocated. And then 25% is still operational. Like we, we launched about a year ago um, and we definitely took the the do things that don't scale approach when we launched it was a true mvp trying to get anybody on who who was interested in, in investing but because of that there are still processes where like i'll go into alto i'll make the deals i'll send the distributions and things um to to investors so i'm i am trying to offload that 25 percent of operational um test but you know you have to do what you got to do yeah, no, absolutely. I, I love your uh, resource allocation timelines, like recruitment, business development, investments in, in one bucket. I think I, I, I love that approach. Uh, and you know, when it comes to you know uh, hiring people, what's been your your approach, and where, where do you think you have you know improved in the last couple of years when it comes to recruitment? Yes, um, we've gotten super lucky. We've gotten super lucky. So a good story about our first um, hire was he was actually found on Upwork. Um, we were looking for a wine blog writer and 
this is when it was just Patrick and I had like just quit my day job. Um, and uh, we needed someone who was knowledgeable about wine to just get some content out there, um, start building up SEO. And we um, found this guy, Billy. Naturally, I disintermediated the platform. I found him on LinkedIn, messaged him. And um, he not only started working with us part-time for three months, he was one of our invest- he in- investors in the friends and family round worked part-time for three months and then was employee number one. Um, So super lucky on that front. Um, We've really benefited from, you know, network effects where we take calls, get intros to different people. Um, For me, um, every hire we bring on is a critical decision. Like one of the biggest decisions we'll make that month or that quarter, because in these early days, if we get it wrong, that's going to compound in a negative manner. If we get it right, it's going to compound upwards. So um, I feel really good with who we've brought on. And um, I think the biggest testament is we keep getting good people. Um, So if we had gotten it wrong, you know, we probably wouldn't get as quality of um, individuals that we we bring on, but um, there's no like secret sauce to what we've done. You know, we've done LinkedIn, uh, we've done AngelList to fill the top of the funnel, um, but it's always taking the calls and um, you know treating each conversation as an opportunity to learn from that person and learn about them. Um, so. Yeah, we have a great team. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions, and making your days calmer and more productive. You can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. In your experience, where do you think uh, you know founders make make uh, you know uh, the mistakes when it comes to team building? Uh, are there any advice for for listeners who are just starting out uh, on what mistake they should avoid? Yeah, <laughs> I'll say uh, you know been doing this for a year, so I am certainly no expert. I think I've just gotten lucky most of the time. Um, like I. That's, that's a good question. Um, like one, I'm always making mistakes and like, um, we've, you know, worked on a part-time basis with people and we have let them go very quickly if it was not working. So for, for me, um, you know, the business comes first, if things are not working, having those conversations ASAP and then making sure that, um, one things change or two, if they don't, you know, they might not be a fit, um, and, and moving quickly on that. So, um, I think anyone who doesn't work out, that's a failure on myself. Um, either they weren't a fit for the role. We didn't provide them with the appropriate resources or guidance. Um, so, uh, you know, really, you know, everyone who we bring on, we want to, to win. And, um, I think transparent communication is big. Um, if, uh, we're, we're big on feedback, big on radical candor. Um, so, you know, 
no, no one answer to that. Just uh, mistakes are going to be made and always trying to learn from them and do better the next time. Yeah, no, I, 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 lo- I love that answer. And I, I wonder to understand, you know, what would be, uh, it may sound cliche, but what would be your biggest trends and what would be your biggest weaknesses? Yes, I am persistent. Uh, I, I am persistent to a fault. So I, uh, if I need to get in touch with someone, I will get in touch with you, whether you like it or not. Um, so that, you know, relates to pushing through different things like the SEC qualification process that involves a ton of persistence, like getting our first investors, getting our partners, like, um, persistence is, um, I view as my, that as my X factor. I always ask that question in interviews is like, what is your X factor? And I, I can pretty confidently say, um, you know, I have a high level of persistence, um, potentially top 1%, which that does work to, a, to its fault. Sometimes I'm not going to give you the answer of that's my weakness, but, um, like weakness. Um, one thing that I've really been trying to work on, um, and Patrick is a good, um, balance for this is like being, uh, like less emotionally charged. Like what I think one of the benefits is like, I find something, uh, you know, and I want to put it in motion right away. Um, and that is great when you're trying to take something from zero to one. Um, but, um, really just sleeping on things and not, um, making the decision when emotions, whether it's high or low, um, are, are, um, really volatile. Um, I, I use the analogy of, I try and keep my days between fours and sixes. Um, so as a startup founder, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. And if you start having good days that are eights, your bad days are going to start becoming twos and you start going up and down and up and down. So really trying to manage that, um, which uh, always trying to improve. Got it. No, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and uh, do you, have you made a you know a a, a big purchase which uh, which has brought you a great joy? Uh, anything, uh, any particular product or a service that you have bought uh, which has really changed your life? Good question. Uh, I joined a boxing gym that has uh, been my best investment over the last two years. During COVID, I joined Having Never Boxed. I read the book Mastery by George Leonard, where um, he he really talks about how to um, you know approach learning new things. Um, you have the dabbler. You have the person in the middle and then you have the master just always trying to um you know push through the plateaus and learn so joining a boxing gym where i was starting from square one having never boxed before it was a really humbling activity um and you know i get a great workout and it continues to be humbling i think it's a good analogy to startups is you're always going to get punched in the face um and it, yeah, that's been my my best purchase slash investment recently. Interesting because you know uh, your physical health and mental health is really important for for a, for a founder. But 
uh, also, you know, how, how do you focus on mental health? Because a lot of times entrepreneurship is, is all about hustle, working 24-7. But what, what do you think is idle violence and how do you focus on mental health? Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. And um, my like, I think it's probably not talked about enough. Like for me, going to the gym is a non-negotiable. Like that is how I stay sane is go to the gym in the morning before I start my day. And I, I notice, like if I don't make it to the gym or get a workout in my stress level feels much higher. So I, um, I've explored like the meditation and journaling side of things. I've never gotten into that habit, but I do find meditative activities where I can disconnect from work. Granted, I do think I always work and working, but uh, going to the gym, um, cooking is another one for me where I don't have to think about anything. I can just chop vegetables and, and, and cook. So um, having those outlets and having a, um, you know, good support system. Like my fiance has been incredibly supportive um, since day one. Patrick's another good um, part of my support system. So uh, that's how I, I handle the ups and downs. Interesting. And and how do you, how do you get to decide what to focus on, uh, what tasks to focus on your day-to-day basis? Yeah. So there's what is on fire today um, is one prioritization method of, okay, we have to put this fire out today. Um, that's going to be the number one priority. Everything else is going to, um, you know, seed to that um, singular priority. Uh, but we have, and it's something that I've struggled with as a founder is like um, uh, providing an air, like a singular focus. Um, so a few tools that we use, um, we use a vision traction organizer at the highest level, which funnels down into a one-year plan, which funnels down into OKRs. And those OKRs will funnel down into um, what is being done on my day-to-day um, sort of schedule. And um, I, I look at my schedule and make sure that every single thing that I'm doing um, somewhat relates to what are the goals this quarter or this year for the business. Um, yeah. Super interesting. And uh, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Messy Middle uh, by Scott Belsky. I bought that for um, quite a few founders. Yeah, I could see it at the back of your uh, print, yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you could go back in time when you started a win, what is the one thing you were focused on or done anything differently? Way less research. Um, just go out and talk to people and put something out there. And, you know, don't need to build a model or a fancy deck. Just go talk to people and try and sell a product. Very nice. And uh, do you have your favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Notion. We should cut it. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Nick, what is the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Vint? Definitely. Um, my email is nick at vint.co. I am addicted to email and will probably respond immediately. So, um, yeah, and you can check out Vint at vint.co. Um, we do new IPOs about every week. Got to put that in our show notes. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thanks, Roy. 
Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.